Abe. Oh, I don't know why that this voice is new. Hello. Hello, Hello Michael. Abe. Hello. Uh, query. <laughs> Which film were we meant to watch? Oh, you didn't watch the film. What? You didn't watch the right film. We're supposed to watch Darjeeling Limited. Oh, no. Oh, God. Yeah. The voice is back. You stole the thunder <laughs> by doing the voice before me. Oh, oh my I'm God. I'm sorry. Abe, I watched. What did you watch? I watched Jar Dealing Limitless about the guy who takes the limitless pill and then corners the market on making mason jars, which have an unusually high profit margin. That's actually, that's actually good. I don't know why that one actually jar, gets me. That's jar <laughs> Dealing Limitless. Because they're jar deals and it's limitless. Yeah, it's that's limitless. hilarious. <laughs> uh, is, the, is the bit... Warming up to me? I don't know. Man. <laughs> Maybe we've shot the moon on this bit. <laughs> it's start, I'm starting to like it. And it, on that note, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, this is uh, Anderson's. That's right. That's that's uh, I'm Abe Epperson. I'm here with Michael Swain. That's me. Here's the thing. Here, What we do on this podcast Preach. is we go over the P.T. Anderson's films and we go over the Wes Anderson's films. Mm-hmm. That's the Anderson's. Uh, we're about halfway through both of their discographies right now, or I should say filmography. Sorry. Yeah. Speaking of warming up, I'm starting to warm up to, uh, Wes Anderson. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I I don't know. That was the arc we were hoping for. So maybe you just forced it as a good storyteller. I think I'm getting Stockholm syndrome, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about your thoughts on this movie or like how you came into it, but I had not seen this movie. Oh, at uh, all? Okay, I'd seen this yeah. in theaters. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think uh, this—I think that's true. It's the first one that I hadn't seen of Wes Anderson that we've been watching, except uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Later, uh, that one I have seen. Yeah, which I went to on a date, which did not go well. <laughs> uh, this is, I think, my new favorite Wes next to Tenenbaums. Wow. The first act really. Pretty thoroughly mumblecore, people having conversations by not responding to each other, just talking at each other. Still hate that shit. Uh, it's hard for me to enjoy. But the second half, especially the middle section of this movie, really rips. It's a really laid out, laid, well, like laid out uh, like presentation of grief, right? Uh, it's got metaphors and whatnot. <laughs> it's, it's also one of the least funny Wes Anderson movies. Do you agree? I mean, I don't um, know what your thoughts are on this. I immediately think of one moment that always breaks me that I think is very funny. And you probably know what I mean. It's the belt moment. Hey, Francis, here's your belt back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's just a funny thing to do is to hit someone in the face with a thrown belt. Who throws a belt? Honestly. But anyway, my God, I've become (laughs) an Austin Powers guy. Uh, I feel like... In the interest of something we're going to announce at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be honest and say, this is not to me like Star Trek The Next Futurama show we do where we compare and contrast two things and we actually find very interesting stuff out in the gulf between them. Uh, I was wondering if we'd end up if, with an overall thesis between Wes and PT by any chance, but I think I I just got to say, you know, this, if you've been with us for a long time, this shows along the, 
in the same spirit as like Coen Brothers Brothers and deep mm-hmm. dives on auteurs. Basically, we like to cover filmmaking auteurs, uh, except for Quentin Tarantino, which we'll never do. And I can say that now. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't see anything. I think we're just doing two at once. You know what I mean? I don't necessarily I see anything hmm. between them. Do you? I, 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 I mean, they they cover the same topics and there's actually like to me forming there's a dichotomy about how they approach the topics and the topic is like dysfunction and lack of attachment to other humans being able to communicate well to get over grief to get over to do these things that are very human uh there's always something in the way and that's true of like almost all pt anderson's movies almost it's true of almost all wes anderson movies it's what they like to talk about And I think that there's Hmm. two real approaches that are different to me. One is that P.T. Anderson approaches it with, uh, I I would call it more genuine just because it's how I approach life. And I think that that's just true about like, if you're a Wes Anderson fan, you like what he's dropping in terms of what he's doing. And if you're PT Anderson, you you like, you can like both. I'm just saying that like PT Anderson has, it's all about communication and everyone trying to like, look at punch drunk love. It's about like, what's the healing that comes from punch drunk is the most comparable to OS for sure to me. For sure. Because it's like, yeah, it's definitely romance, but I mean, I'd say even heart eight and I'd, uh, I'd say Magnolia. Definitely. It's about this, can we be real to each other kind of thing? Yeah. Can we say what I am? don't feel I'm allowed to say to people? That seems to be what P.T. Anderson's M.O. is most of, the t- most of the time. Wes Anderson is, it's almost like trying to read subtext. And it's kind of the same mumblecore stuff that I don't like, which is I will refuse to say the context of what I feel because it seems unforgivable or it seems weak. To be that or honest seems, or that authentic, yeah. I can't be honest until, until uh, usually like a uh, signpost <laughs> moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then so they kind of carry on. So it's two different kind of okay. subtle different approaches to grief is my read of both. So there is directors. connective tissue there. I just didn't do the work is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> so I didn't I, grok that or, or even investigate that. I've just been, but I still think they stand alone as deep dives like, hey, their names are the same, so we did them both at once. That's true. Fight me. That's Assume true. Me. Um, but this It's Notable came out in 2007, the same year as the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men and P.T. Anderson's There Will Be Blood. <laughs> yeah. Very different film, Darjeeling Limited. They <clears throat> oh. went west and he went east. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's, That's true. true. Um, and it's yeah. the first for west that is like very... I mean, it's always about healing, but this one... Like, it's the first movie since Bottle Rocket, I want to say, that doesn't include, like, flashback montage as a major component of the exposition of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's most like a play for Anderson's films so far. It's confined to a train for most of the first half of the movie. So it's 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 very atypical for him as well. Yeah. So what I've been dancing around by talking about other things that I do think are interesting, but to respond to your initial blush. Oh, um, yeah. And this, so f- I've been... De- in a bad depression for about a week and a half. And this fell within that time period. So I'm just trying to say maybe that wove into it, but I did not care for this movie in theaters or the second time, even mm-hmm. less. Um, and, and that is a twist for me because I've 
been the more open to Wes. And I do like both Wes and P.T. Anderson on the Mm. whole. Um, And I'm realizing that I might love this film if it was the first or second. Because you're right, it compares well to Tenenbaums. And it doesn't ape much of Tenenbaums. But I felt like this was a remix of elements from Rushmore and Bottle Rocket primarily. Um, and that That's just true. bugged me the whole time. And I don't mm. know why, because I'm also a guy who constantly craves novelty or like you have to do something new now. And that's not necessarily even a valid rubric. Like, you know what I mean? You don't you can like the same thing over and over. Lots of people do. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But for some reason, it bothers me that I feel like I see the I see the cut and paste. It feels forced to me. And like there's yeah. a, there's a line in the movie where he says, uh, oh, they're praying and listening to bells. And he says, do you think this is going to work? Do you feel something? I hope so. It's got to. And that's kind of my feeling about them. <laughs> like Wes Anderson is just saying, it's like I, praying. Pu- <laughs> I put all these elements that I know you like together. This has to work. <laughs> like this yeah. has to mean something. I piled all this stuff together. Um, is my See, feeling I feel about that way. <laughs> I feel that way about what every Wes Anderson movie. That's one of the reasons I'm. It's hard for me to like him, but this movie does have. Like I think it has one of the first genuine moments. What a uh, turn! Which, which we'll discuss as we like. I guess enter the diegesis. Uh, Please do. And by the way, yeah. I love Moonrise Kingdom, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Yep. Let's go, diegesis. Our first. Uh, form of spectra mm-hmm. yeah that we uh we examine this and this is kind of just the breakdown of the film we kind of go through the film talk about what we like and don't like and you know what it means uh kind of a deep plot summary that's right <clears throat> all right movie starts a deep clean. go ahead we get bill murray's running from something or he's trying to get his or train but it, yeah. he keeps looking back and you you want to know what's exactly going on in that story but uh he's in the back seat of the taxi we see whip pans uh the the movie starts with a shot that's like a 70s servo zoom which uh is another way of saying like that 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 comes from like if you've seen django and chain the zoom in where it, it uh it it zooms into leonardo dicaprio and he like nods everyone's seen that meme mm-hmm. uh that zoom that that you know that it's almost like too fast that's a s- servo zoom and it's most uh known in the 70s he's used it wes anderson's used it in a lot of his films but it's basically we it's all the makings of the wes anderson toolkit and it's a little bit actiony um and then he starts running towards a uh, a train yeah but he's too slow he gets passed by adrian brody uh, who leaves him behind as if to say, Bill Murray, you're not in this movie. <laughs> right. It's his, um, first of all, yeah, it's what Abe I th- or the layman's way. Cause I'm not a doctor movie of what Abe so expertly said there, I think is the first few shots are super Wes Anderson. You're like, here we go. It's a Wes Anderson movie on display full force immediately, including a uh, character running right to left in slow-mo profile while indie rock plays 
And that, which is a signature Wes Anderson shot that he usually puts in the end. This is like, boom, You we're starting with the Wes Anderson signature shot. Right. And that is a shot of Adrian Brody waving goodbye to Bill Murray, who was, <laughs> of course, Steve Zissou in the last big outing. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> goodbye, Bill Murray. I'm leaving my last film behind physically. Yeah. Which is it funny because they immediately board the Dar- the titular Darjeeling. He boards the titular Darjeeling Limited, which we then dissect as a train throughout the film, much like the sub and Life Aquatic. You know, it's mm-hmm. all, it's a, like mm-hmm. a set. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very similar in that we're stuck in one place. But this movie a lot of has lateral a lot, shots. Yeah, it definitely has a more play like. Uh, like it, we're with the three brothers for the most point, mm-hmm. most part. Just and three so we, brothers. They, yeah. And so we kind of introduce them. The next scene is kind of Owen Wilson, who's Francis, the eldest of the brothers, spells out his wants in like a single shot. He says, look, and he, by the way, he has his face is all cut up and he's got bandages all over, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about soon. He's like, we want to uh, look, I'm this whole trip. The whole point is we need to be brothers. We need to be open with each other, bond with each other. I want this trip to be a spiritual journey. Uh, and here's an itinerary, you know? And we have to say and, yes to everything, even if it's shocking and painful. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he says, my assistant Brendan typed this up, and I just want to point out how Tenenbaums it is that there's always a random servant with a weird mm-hmm. affect. And in this case, it's that he has alopecia. He's in mm-hmm. a different compartment on another part of the train. We never see him ever. <laughs> <laughs> and we also meet Jason Schwartzman, Jack. The third brother, who's the quiet, introspective um, sort of writer, yeah, yeah, wannabe short story writer. Yeah. And uh, as a kind of uh, in terms of like how Wes Anderson does jokes, it's this whole like he does this whole like someone is going to take over and just own a scene. Right. In this case, it's Owen Wilson just saying, look, I'm in control of everything. This is what I want. This is what's going to happen. And then kind of subverted by uh, a little bit of quiet after that whole thing, after it ends. And then uh, Adrian Brody, who's, who plays Peter, goes, I have a question. What happened to your face? So it's like kind of, that's like a typical Wes Anderson like right. layup, right? Uh, and it turns out that uh, Francis was in a motorcycle accident. He tells accident. a whole other monologue story, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this apparently caused his wanderlust and his need to reconcile with his brothers and, as we learn later, his mother. Mm-hmm. Have you heard anything from music. mom? No, me neither. Then there's a funny bit, which I don't mean that sarcastically. It's good where they all take Indian drugs they got at the pharmacy and try each other's drugs and talk about how you don't need prescriptions here. Which <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's true. As a guy later says, like, you should not have these. Um, Jack wants them all to read a short story that he wrote in France, but they don't really care. Um, they And then uh, Peter kind of mm-hmm. reads it. Uh, Peter is put off by the fact that Francis has a missing tooth that he removes without like saying, I'm, Hey, trigger warning. I'm about to remove my tooth. And, uh, Peter's like, uh, I'm sorry. Francis is like, careful. You spit my eye. I don't, we get the, like, they can't get along for more than a few seconds. Right. Even though he just gave this speech about reconciling. Um, they referenced that they, it's the last or one of the last times they all were together was their father's funeral a year ago in the United States. Um, Francis orders their food on their behalf and takes Peter's glasses off his face. So again, he like owns the scene. Um, he's also like pissed about the glasses, which starts a running arc of, um, 
Peter always taking their dead dad's stuff. Are those dad's glasses? Mm -hmm. You still have the prescription in here. How do you see with these? Um, Peter kind of reads Jack's short story, kind of doesn't. Meanwhile, Jack ogles an attractive stewardess and is like, I want that stewardess. Mm, Rita. Yeah. Um, Oh, and Peter yells at some, I'm going to say it, MILFs nearby to keep their voices down. (laughs) German MILFs. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> Gilfs, wait, that's something else uh, This is the first time, also, I kind of alluded to it earlier um, I can't remember exactly how Bottle Rocket starts But if I recall, this is the first time in a Wes Anderson movie Where we don't have a montage that spells out the relationships between all the people Like, there's not, it, because it's not an ensemble there's cast There's no list I don't of think clubs, that, there's no list of mm-hmm. Jacques Cousteau films Yeah yeah, or the the family members, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, because I think it's such a smaller cast uh, for a Wes Anderson movie. He didn't feel the need to do that because it's not a lo- lo- long list. So it's probably not needed. But I just wanted to notice that because it does give you a different vibe than literally all of his other movies. Yeah. Um, a bunch of arcs that become comedic callbacks are set up. Uh, Francis being domineering, he says, did I raise us? Kind of. Uh, mm-hmm. Peter, uh, everyone keeping secrets from each other, like triangulating. So every pair of two has a secret from the other one anytime they leave the mm-hmm. space. Um, so Peter tells Jack his wife is pregnant, but he's, quote, trying not to get too caught up in that right now and not <laughs> to tell Francis. And uh, Francis, you know, complains to jack about peter taking dad's glasses behind his back so they're all talking behind each other's backs all the time um and then another thing that will happen repeatedly is peter finishes reading the short story and whenever people read the short story they comment on it was very true to life i remember when that happened and jack always goes oh all the characters are fictional but it's clearly based on them it's autobiographical yeah Yeah. it's (laughs) um which becomes a later moment and i do think it is kind of the same thing from Tannenbaum's when we suddenly cut to Luke Wilson in the mirror and you realize he's about to kill himself. But it does work right. and it's a good beat is that in the midst of all this mumblecore stuff that's almost like curb your enthusiasm banter, uh, Peter steps away and you think it's so you think it's so that they can have a secret from him, which it is, but it serves a double purpose because then we cut to Peter in the bathroom in a static full close reading the short story and crying, which is a really right. cool moment. <clears throat> yeah. And it kind of develops his arc because he's the one who stands out. There's, um, I mean, he's the first one we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that it's for the most part, it's the brother's film, but it's, he's the main person he undergoes the the biggest change yeah he undergoes the biggest change he has the most uh to like you know show Mm -hmm. uh everyone else and he's at the precipice of a new he's becoming a father so it's like he really is uh the most important one really story i guess darjeeling limited (laughs) he really is the darjeeling limited yeah as um moving right along uh as we mentioned francis has an assistant And there's a small scene where they're planning some kind of surprise for the brothers. We don't know exactly what it is, but Francis is keeping something from the brothers and Brandon is helping. Um, Meanwhile, Jack kind of has this love at first sight with Rita, who works on the train, as you mentioned. And they fuck after seeing each other smoking out of the window of the train. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also see a little bit later that Rita's in a relationship 
with the uh, chief steward of the train. Mm -hmm. Uh, Uh They are also uh, considering bailing from the trip early or whenever they feel like the vibe is not good anymore, which Francis Mm -hmm. catches wind of. uh, Since one of them tells on tattles on the other one uh, in the middle of them being like, did you fuck that Indian girl? And Francis is like, all right, everybody give me your passports. It's safer if I hold on to all your passports. But really, he's just trying Mm -hmm. to keep them from bailing. Right. Right. Um, so the train stops at a place where you can use the phone and Jack uses the phone and, uh, Francis and Peter watch him out the window and Peter tells Francis, oh, he's probably checking his ex-girlfriend's voicemail messages because he has the password to her voicemail box. And (laughs) I do like this joke too. Uh, when did he confide that in you just now? Why am I not a part of this? Like (laughs) he just wants full transparency between all brothers about all things at all times. Right. Um, Well, and especially I think because he feels left out and he doesn't want to feel left out at this point. Right. But I think there is, and in fact, there is a genuine want of like I want us. I you believe him? He's he's being genuine when he's saying things like I want us to all like you know actually have a spiritual journey. And 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 he says what she'll say many times. Let's all make an agreement, okay? And this time it's an agreement not to triangulate or split into factions and to tell each other everything while they're on the trip. And they all agree. Uh, in we find a bottle of uh Natalie Portman, his, his ex's signature perfume in Jack's briefcase, and mm-hmm. he uh he says, I think <laughs> I, I think we should destroy that. So Jack immediately laugh, smashes yeah. the bottle, which of course makes the whole Means. compartment reek of perfume for the rest of the movie. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like yeah. that. <laughs> I thought that that was funny just because it's like it's very um. It's very impulsive and shows that they're like not very good at doing what they need to yeah, do. Yeah, they're three stooges. Take, yeah. Yeah, they're three stooges. Um, next up, they kind of stop at a Hindu temple uh, when we get our first like off the train moment. Yeah. Uh, I also want to mention, sorry, while we're oh, yeah. here, just to make that clear, Natalie Portman actually doesn't appear in the film. But if you saw this in theaters, and Abe, I don't know if you watched it for good measure, but I did. Hotel Chevalier, the short that accompanied this film. Are you aware of that? I didn't. Okay. I, I have seen it, but I didn't watch it in this time. The yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know that it was Schwartzman and Portman. So it's and, literally yeah. the short story that Schwartzman writes in this that you hear quotes from. Those are lines from Hotel Chevalier. So ah. it's the expanded <laughs> WACU. Like yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you saw this in theaters, there was a short where Jason Schwartzman and Natalie Portman bone for 24 hours in Paris. It's referenced in this. Uh, multiple times and in fact the short story he's writing is Hotel Chevalier the short so that's just that's what that is Um, and we can talk about the short or not but anyway you're right they arrive at their first temple Francis calls it one of the most spiritual places in the world and then we zoom out we 70s zoom out and they immediately go shopping for shoes power adapters and and pepper spray (laughs) yeah they go to a bazaar and they and it's I uh, great for very all arrested of the development. random, yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Because uh, it kind of like it's actually like a um, like a Robert Altman kind of thing where mm-hmm. it like roves between, like you look at you check in with Adrian Brody, you check in with uh, Owen Wilson, and it's like this distant kind of telephoto camera. Um, but <clears throat> something that I, something that I actually do respect with Wes Anderson is that amidst all of his kind of, you know alopecia and you know random details Mm. that it's like 
there's just so much going on and it's almost hard to write like a plot summary for uh, right. a Wes Anderson yeah. movie because there's just so much ex- seemingly extraneous details. I did like that at the bazaar buy shoes, a battery, pepper spray and a snake and they <laughs> all have and a cobra and they all have very important parts roles to play in the rest of the movie they're all a Chekhov's uh, gun everything gets yeah used. exactly yeah. everything gets used and one of them is specifically i'd say uh, the battery is the metaphor in the movie um batteries are talked about all the time adapters but we'll get more in that i think when we approach interesting i don't have anything gotcha. for that that didn't occur to me, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I forget cool. when the power adapter is used. Um, so they ring bells, go into the temple. They put rupees on the altar, pray together. Um, they mm-hmm. bicker about the belt, the dad's belt. Uh, is that my belt? Can I borrow it? <laughs> and, and he's already wearing it, which mm-hmm. is, of course, ironic because they're all hypocrites because uh, he calls Peter out for Francis calls Peter out for taking things. And says, you should always ask first. And then he goes, wait a minute, where's my passport? (laughs) Which we saw him take when Peter wasn't looking. Mm -hmm. Um, So they bicker about that to the point where Peter just stands up and walks away. And Francis says, Peter, where are you going? And he goes, I'm going to I'm going to go pray at a different thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I do like that a lot. The movie's very funny. Maybe I'll like it by the end of the conversation. Let's just keep going. Jack Mm -hmm. tells Francis that Peter's going to have a kid in six weeks, but didn't want him to know. And Francis goes, I guess we still don't trust each other. Clearly, clearly it's not working yet. Um, So they then on the way out of the temple, go to get a shoe shine, uh, which Francis thinks will be a nice bonding moment. Owen Wilson does kill it in this Owen Wilson's great. But uh, the little kid just runs off with his shoe and he's like, why would he take one shoe? Or now he doesn't get paid. And he's like, he can pay for a lot now. That shoe's like $3,200, which is very Joe. The guy in the $3,500 shoes. Yeah. Um, So uh, he ends up freaking out and kind of having a little Wes Anderson style breakdown. This is an emergency situation. I got my face smashed. Jack's heart's been torn to shreds and Rubby's about to have a child because they started calling Peter Rubby because he has headaches. Um, And they sort of (laughs) have a scene where they help Peter. You know, they're good brothers by just by being there. They help him process his expectation that he'll inevitably get divorced because their parents got divorced. Um, they point out that some local guys are laughing at them and then he I love says, that. I love it here. These people are beautiful. And then <laughs> Jack people says, are laughing at they're it, playing so. cricket with a tennis ball. <laughs> like just three unrelated observations. Yeah. It's also, none of them are, <laughs> those none people of them, are laughing at us. <laughs> yeah. None of them are what you take away from the previous statement. You know, like, right, like right. those people are laughing at us. It's he just like, I love it here. <laughs> it's like, it reminds me of, yeah, uh, it's always sunny. Great. Yeah. Uh, that one improv or that improv in, it's always sunny if you've seen those improv reels where Charlie Day is like they're clearly talking about how he's like I think it's the wild card I think it's the gas episode mm-hmm. I can't remember the gang but solves like, the gas Char- crisis something like that and it's but the point is that it's uh it's Charlie Day is the the other members of the gang are just saying how terrible Charlie is mm-hmm. and it's like uh they're just like ragging on him and ragging on him finally goes yeah it's like he doesn't even get us it's like we're talking about you we're talking it's about like he you. doesn't even get us <laughs> yeah uh. yeah anyway it's a good uh non sequitur mm. uh, sometimes it works on me 
Francis reads the short story, also says, good job making it about us. Jack insists the characters are all <laughs> fictional. Um, they hop on the train and we get a quirky foot shot where one has no shoes, one has one shoe, and one has two shoes. And Abe, I challenge you to make that a meaningful postcard. What does that mean? Why is it zero one two? Uh, That's just filigree, really. right? That's I just mean, Wes like, Anderson it, bullshit. It, it does reveal a lot about the characters, but I wouldn't say that it has any intrinsic meaning. Like I'd say that the reason that uh, Francis has one shoe, or he has a shoe, uh, he has a shoe that he got at the bazaar, and then a sh- uh, his normal shoe, mm-hmm. is because he's kind of on the precipice. He's trying to use both. He's trying to get them to be a certain way. Um, I think that. Uh, there's something to be said about uh, Swartzman's character having no shoes because he's the most, he's already the most wanderlust on his journey. And immediately he's a writer. Adapts. He's working. He on does his, whatever's in front of him. Yeah. He's healing from his grief already. He's on his journey. I mean, he's writing stories about it. And uh, the, you know, uh, Peter, who has both shoes and they're, you know, businessman's shoes, is, is still refusing the you call. Fucking got me that's, again. Dr. Moody! Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's what I read from it. But anyway. Um, so then the big reveal is we see Francis planning with Brendan and we understand from context clues that he sent a message ahead to their mother who is in India in the Himalayas mm. and foothills of the Himalayas. And uh, Brendan assures him she got the message that you're coming. So it's, but it's unclear if she wants to see them. So he's going to surprise them with a visit to their mom, who, if for some reason, is in India. Um, and we find out more about that later. Let's see. The stewardess serves them tea and sits and has one puff of a cigarette with Jack and then puts it out, which I've never seen someone do. And she importantly says uh, to Jack, like, I've got to get off this train. Yeah. Uh, revealing that she is unhappy. Um, mm-hmm. And then just then, the cobra that Peter bought has gotten out of the box somehow. There's a hole. And the chief steward enters the room and takes care of the snake, finds the snake, and then chastises them for bringing a poisonous animal aboard uh, yeah. and threatens to kick them off the plane, tr- the, off the train, and then relents and says that they're confined to quarters, which doesn't seem... <laughs> long since we cut to them literally next to they're at a different temple and they're just walking around the train so nothing came from that other than slap on clearly the pissing yeah. them yeah they're pissing them off which pays off later um then they say the lines i alluded to before do you think it's working don't you feel something i hope so it's got to so um they're going on this spiritual journey but and they're all game now but it still feels forced right and this the evolution of the spiritual journey right um then there i gotta mention because when we talked to steve zasu i mentioned the coffin flag dropping shot Mm. uh then we get this postcard shot through these two windows spaced apart in the dark of people prepping for bed with this like really reedy music playing. And for me in this movie, that's the money. <laughs> like I, that's the vibe shot that I want to live in. Uh, it's yeah. such a enjoyable it, or that's the shot where I was like, I need to visit India. Um, right. Francis right. Uh, asks, do you guys trust me? And then the train suddenly breaks down. So I think that's also a metaphor. Um, they mm-hmm. wander outside. Brandon says the train's lost. Uh, we haven't. He goes where? And he go, how can I get lost? It's on tracks. 
Um, they took a wrong turn in the night and they don't know where on the map we are. They haven't located us yet. <gasps> Say that again. We haven't located us yet. Is that yeah. symbolic? We haven't located us yet. So Francis <laughs> is like, this is a sign. Turning it into a thing. Yeah. yeah. This is How the, am I not myself? <laughs> How am I not yeah. myself? He decides this is the time to do this special ritual he's been planning where they each meditate with peacock feathers. And so they hold hands in a circle and he reveals, we'll be seeing our mom in six days. I had a PI tracker down. It turns out she became a nun at a monastery in the Himalayas and we're going to see her. How do you know she wants to see us? She probably doesn't, but maybe she does. <laughs> so he explicitly states that his goal is to get her and bring her back home and that she's suffered a mental collapse and they're just going to gather her, which you're which like, that is not is... going to go well. And I think that mental collapse is not true. I think he's, I think he's lying again. I think he's trying to make it seem like butter up the idea of their, of, well, she's our mom. She must want to be a family again. Like he's just assuming that. Right. Um, they get pissed. They say they never would have come on the trip if they knew that was the goal. Um, the train starts to take off. So they all have to run to catch it and they ditch the ritual, which sort of feels sad at the time. And Jack yeah. gets crunk on cough medicine, <laughs> but it <laughs> yep, barely seems yep. to affect him. He can hold his scissor. <clears throat> yep. And as they're getting, uh, as they're getting uh, high on painkillers, uh, mm-hmm. Peter, they, they're talking more about the itinerary and Peter says, fuck the itinerary to which Francis tries to take his belt back. So he get once again, another beat of the passage of the belt, which seems to be controlled by Francis. Once again, the control freak. Uh, it's this back and forth of give me the belt, give me the belt, give me the belt. And he says, Uh, no, there's been too much Indian giving over the years. And that seems like such a loud word choice for this movie. Right. And I, I, what did you think that was about? Or is it just to show that he's dumb and insensitive or I, I think so. I think it, okay. I think they're trying to be clever because they they often do that. They don't know what alopecia is, you know, like right. they're, they're very insensitive. Sheltered. Yes. They're insensitive even though they do pray and they try. Uh right. they're dummies. They want the commodified experience of a spiritual journey. They kind of do. Which is and funny because I mean, that's what you want when you go to a film sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and I think that there's a lot of critiques can be lobbed at uh, you know, Wes Anderson's understanding of a lot of different cultural, you know, touch points here. But I think in the end, his heart is in the place of like, they're trying. They're, they're actually trying. They're just insensitive. Yeah. It's funny. Which is evidenced by this because he throws the belt in his face and they fight. But while they're fighting, they're telling each other, I love you. So that is the dichotomy, right? That's the postcard for their relationship. You don't love me. Yes, I do. Well, I love you too, but I'm going to mace you both in the face. And Jack maces them to try and break them up. I had to do it. I think Schwartzman's really good in this scene. Mm -hmm. Um, They chase him and he keeps yelling, stop (laughs) including me. Stop including me. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's the little brother who maced you. It's funny because that's usually not what the little brother says is please include me. That's true. I did. Yeah, I but like maces that. them uh, repeatedly and then smashes into a glass door, shattering it with his face. And we mm-hmm. cut to they are actually kicked off the train this time. Finally, this time yeah. they're done. <laughs> yeah, and uh, done. Brent. First thing, Brendan quits. He's like, you know, I'm done. They with make this fun nonsense. of his. They don't make fun of. They're just insensitive about insensitive his alopecia, again. and he just quits mm-hmm. immediately. Uh, do and, we? And uh, they ask the the head steward. So do we get our snake back? Your snake is dead. 
<laughs> and then another guy goes, your fake tooth is missing <laughs> to France. And then the uh, German mills uh, <laughs> say, like, on you. shame on you. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rita and Jack have a tearful goodbye. There's a beat earlier that we missed, which is just that she, uh, when they were, they, they had another like stealing kisses again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's like, I don't want You're you to kiss me. You're fucking up my relationship. You're yeah. fucking up. I'm going to break up with him though. So she's like kind of half in, half out. Um, and she, uh, he says she's very important to him and cut to this moment where they're saying a kind of a tearful goodbye. Uh, and she's like, and he's like, thanks for using me because he's kind of aware of what the situation was. So she, and she goes, you're welcome. And they talk about, well, maybe she's like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, well, next time I see you, maybe I'll have an answer for you. Um, so how there's that, this feeling. Can I ask how that scene hit you? Cause that was one of the, for me moments where I was like, this movie has lost me. I really don't like the vibe of this scene. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've liked a love story from Wes Anderson. Okay. Maybe that's so all I, we need th- to say. Th- I, yeah. I, I think that <laughs> they feel transactional. Very... This one reminds me of the bottle rocket exactly. one where yep. it's always the dude is just suddenly head over heels against all reason. And it's always doomed. And just because of circumstances, I don't know. It, uh, it always feels like a pass to me when it's like, like, for example, he scripted thanks for using me, yeah. which I you know brought up intentionally because I think that to me, that is kind of a backward acknowledgement. But he used of what her, occurred. right? Yeah. He used her just as much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I want to say, you know, love at first sight, love at first sight. So mm-hmm. everything is fine. But at the same instance, because he strips away all kind of actual like flirtation and charm and, you know, really intimacy from his love stories uh it feels like people are just using each other all the time and it's just like like think of uh margo in royal tenenbaums everything seems transactional like you said and because of that it doesn't ring true because you're not sure exactly how to read the intimacy like who is intimate who is more vulnerable here and i think that that's wes anderson trying to make a statement about love about how vulnerability is hard to assess when in a relationship because one of the greatest fears about being in a relationship is being more vulnerable than the person you're trying to be vulnerable toward and the fear of that person not reciprocating so i think that he's trying to say a statement about the the lack of uh being able to read it i mean that dysfunction there the uh, but at the same instance it creates these love arcs that almost feel like their wish fulfillment like Everyone's just getting the hottest person around and they fuck. And it's like the, the most amazing one night stand you've ever seen. See Hotel Chevalier, which is basically, that's the entire short. It's, I remember it as a kid. Cause it, the, this came out in theaters when I was a teen as like, oh shit, we're going to see Natalie Portman's butt. That was the big scoop at high school or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was the scoop. Yeah. So anyway. This just in, Natalie Portman shows her ass. I'm basically here to impel Abe to say interesting stuff like that, so I'll continue to do that. You're welcome. And showing exactly how much the characters have grown as the train pulls away, they all hurl rocks at it. (laughs) That's funny, yeah. Um, They get a letter from their mother at the next town telling them not to visit and that it's a bad time because there's tigers around. Uh, (laughs) And they all agree that that... Kind of sounds like an excuse. Oh, also notable, she ends the letter with God keep you in the enduring light of Christ. So she's gone all in on being a nun. Yeah, um, she's a nun. 
Yeah. So without Brandon, they're totally helpless. Not totally because they make a fire, but I mean, they can't figure out like how to get a hotel room or whatever. So they just make a bonfire on the beach and hang out and there get, for the night. They get high on painkillers. Again, and drink train booze that Rita gave Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, then they process and, their sadness around mom and say, mm-hmm. which is OK. This is another thing I like is uh Francis says this maybe this or may I forget who it doesn't matter which brother says maybe this is where the spiritual journey ends and of course right. this Francis. sequence is actually where their real spiritual journey begins this is they haven't done a real spiritual right. journey yet it starts now um because yeah, they're the about sadness to, they're feeling or the yeah. real you know the real experience is coming and now. he's right about that um yeah. and this is the beginning of the sequence that I was saying is the best sequence, the best 20 minutes of any Wes Anderson film that I've seen. Well, here we go. It begins with a momentous uh, moment completely thrown away because it's done in 15 seconds in a single static wide shot, which is the much vaunted moment where they all split up with their peacock feathers and pray. He's like, now's the time. (laughs) And they all do it. And it's very hilariously underplayed, like, Okay, that's it. Did you do it? Yeah, I did it. Yep. All right, we did it. And, and there's like squawking and yeah. shit. They're not doing anything in specific. Well, I think the subtitle said also, gibberish. They did it wrong, much like the shoes. One let it blow away, one buried right. it, and the other kept it in their pocket. And Francis is like, you were supposed to bury it. You didn't do it. Um, I tried my hardest. I don't know what else to do. I give up. <laughs> So take two, still getting it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Peter says, we're never coming back to India. Let's just find an airport and go our separate ways. And then Jack says, wouldn't it be great if right now we heard a train in the distance? And he says, not really. It would probably be annoying. So like there, it's all is lost is actually the midpoint in a way, which I do like about the film. It's interesting structurally. They wander down the street uh, when suddenly... Uh, you know, stakes are raised to the level of the real because they have to drop their luggage and race to save some kids who they see fall into a stream off a raft. Well, at first they say, look at these assholes. <laughs> look at these assholes, which is funny. <laughs> then they realize uh, the kids are in just serious to danger. River. Yeah. Yeah. Jack and Francis rescue two of the boys, uh, but Peter fails to save the third who dies and they carry the body back to the boys village. Um, where they spend the night and are kind of treated kindly. Um, mm-hmm. They do crafts with act- the local kids and the they get their mm-hmm. luggage recovered, etc. And this is this is the sequence I was talking about. Actually, it's a really good version. Of, like to me, it, it worked on me of grief in a village. We get the Whitmans uh, getting along with the village, being treated as friends, and then there's this one particular dolly shot that I was really like, "Oh fuck, that's fucking great." The whole funeral which is a, procession, yeah. <clears throat> where it moves from the a, a shot of Owen Wilson on the ground shaking a hand of one of the, the boy he saves, and then it moves over to the right, and we see just a secluded the father of the uh, the father whose son died, mm-hmm. and his you know head is in his hands, yeah, and it's just like. Oh yeah, grief. Like their villages have this a bit, this healing effect, and I think it's reflective of like what this this kind of uh, movie is about. If you were to look at the three brothers as a village, but there's but sadness is kind of solitary, and it needs to just happen on its own. Uh, and it needs to happen kind of behind closed doors. Um, and there's this feeling of you can only get so much out of 
all this, all these processes, all the funeral rites, the prep for the funeral, all these things occur. And it's, that's really not the beginning. That's not really the grieving part. Uh, the grieving part is in these secluded moments where you feel like you're allowed to grieve alone. Uh, and I think that that's, there's something to be said about if he chose to do a snapshot of that and then in, in retrospect to the rest of the film, it really shows how each of them have their own individual story that they have to get through, but they do have each other to kind of rely upon. And I think that that is, I don't know, I thought that that was really cool. It's also like the least mumblecore. It's like everything is consequence, right? Mm -hmm. Everything has to do. It's very genuine. It's very like. Okay. It was Mr. Rogers to me. It's outsiders going into a place and being like, let's True. see how they do this process. It just happens to be the funeral of a child. It's it's true, but it's like as opposed to. A I'm lot not of saying West that Anderson as a knock. I, that's a fine thing to do. Mm -hmm. Interesting you to use film to expose me to other things I haven't seen. Like I learned a lot about assuming it's accurate, which I hope. Um, but I learned a lot about the way a funeral is done there. Like, you know, with the ad bathing in the ashes and the dad passing out from grief in the pond is very powerful. Um, I hope that's all accurate to some degree, but yeah. I'm saying if indeed it is, I feel like I was definitely, uh, enriched by experiencing that sequence for sure. Yeah. And I think it's like one of the only sequence, or it's one of the first sequences in this movie, but in a lot of, um, in a lot of Wes Anderson's like comedies, he doesn't even do this, but like you're, you allow your characters to actually feel stuff and like be in the moment and try to not be about the shit that they're always about and be the way that they're supposed to be and just be a part of the scenery. Like they're not the point of any of this. And that I liked, um, because that's a lot of life, you know, you're just not the star of the show. And that is why we cut to a flashback right before the uh, funeral begins. That is For also very good. Yeah. yeah. Which it flashes back to before, right before their father's funeral. They're on, they're en route uh, with, I believe Alice, who is Peter's pregnant wife, wife? now in the present. Yeah. yeah. Now in the present pregnant. Uh, and they go and uh, Peter kind of stops everything. And this is really what, this is kind of like the culmination of like, okay, so Peter truly is the like protagonist mm -hmm. because they go to pick up the Porsche from the body shop, which is Peter's idea. He's like, oh, we got to do this. We can't just arrive in a limo. This is bullshit. We got to get his Porsche for some bizarre reason. We were never really, it's never alluded to exactly why mm -hmm. this needs to happen. Um, and they arrive at the body shop, which happens to be the name of Jack's short story. And we see P Peter essentially lose his mind over just, I need to drive this Porsche to the funeral. But it won't despite start. It's, it doesn't have Itself being yeah. dead. Yeah. And we also have a conversation about the uh, the battery. He gets a call from his mother, um, who's just not coming to the funeral. And that, you know, it's they find a suitcase later. in the trunk. They all start trying to claim the dead dad's stuff inside the trunk, which is the symbol of grief. Yeah. Suitcases Jack grief. also finds out that his dad never read his book in life because his copy mm -hmm. of his book is unopened. Uh, and he opens it up and we see on the first page that it was dedicated to him, which is just devastating. Dedicated to the dad who never read it. Right. Um, right. And they all come together to manually push the car into the street to try and pop the ignition. They almost get hit by a T-bone by a tow truck driver. They all team up to shout him into submission. It really is an always sunny <laughs> sequence. 
Um, right. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, man? Get back in well, your I car. I love that he's he's very large. Like he's yeah. like, are, are you guys kidding me? <laughs> he, yeah. Or he he's like, I will beat the shit out of. But all there's of three you. of them. But then he cuts to a shot of all three of them, and like, and he's like, Schwartzman whatever. Has no it. shirt on. Yeah, they look legitimately insane. Right. So he just backs down. He's like, all right, man. All right. Um, we also note that the mechanic seems affected to learn of the dad's death, uh, which is neither here nor there. It's just like an emotional touch in the limo. <laughs> Francis pointedly doesn't tell them that mom isn't coming. So it's isn't like he coming. can't bear to give them the bad news. He's just going to let them be surprised Once and again, find out organically. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, raising the other two, you know? Right. Um, um, and then we, yeah, then as Abe said, we get the whole, uh, that's actually, we swip, swapped them, but it doesn't matter. This, then we get the whole cer- uh, funeral ceremony sequence in the village. Um, and the next day, there's well, yeah. a long pivot shot that goes all four ways and has people keep magically appearing in frame like while it's looking the other way almost like those arkham games did with joker where you'd look around and then joker would be there and you'd be like "Ah!" um it keeps adding people to the crowd every time the camera turns uh Mm -hmm. That was another point for me where I was like, this is too Anderson. This is too hat on a hat. <laughs> this is too hat on a hat. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, the villagers, unless you want to stand up for that moment, I'm going to move on. The villagers bless them <laughs> and they leave on a bus. Um, they smile at each other uh, compared to the smile of Daniel Plainview letting his son play with his mustache <laughs> on that train. Um, they seem to be having a thoughtful moment together. We're like, maybe some growth is happening here. But mm. they are just calling the trip short. They're like, we'll be happy with that amount of spiritual growth, right? So they all hit right. the airport. Francis painstakingly plans their last 25 minutes. Like, we're going to do this and this and this, and then five minutes to do this. Um, Francis. Uh, calls Brendan to try and hire him back. Jack goes to call his ex-girlfriend's messages again. And we find out arranges to meet her in Italy, which well, Fran- actually he calls her. He actually calls her. Oh, okay. He calls her. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but they arrange to meet in Italy for another casual bone session. We assume, mm-hmm. which of course will just drag him back into being upset about her. You know, we, we realize yep. this is a loss and Francis She's underscores along, this by yeah. going, Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, they all drink whiskey together, airport whiskey. Peter calls Alice and gets into a fight with her and hangs up. Um, but then tells the brothers that it's going to be a boy. It's going to be a baby boy. She had a sonogram or something. She's angry because I didn't tell her I was coming here. What here until just now? Yeah. <laughs> just and we see yet moment. another passing of the belt because mm-hmm. uh, Francis is like, hey, you know what? You're a Do boy. take your belt back. Belt. Yeah, yeah, have exactly. the belt after all. Um, I think it's a really good running gag about all of them using the phone. It's also alluding to the thing that you said where it's always two versus one, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of who who's on the out. Uh, it's just one after another with who's using the phone. One person knows the answer of who they're talking to. The other doesn't. And it's just a nice right. little like rock, paper, scissors kind of deal. Well, while they're all looking in the bathroom mirror, uh, Francis spontaneously decides to cut his bandages off and reveals his gnarly head damage, um, which is very emotionally similar. And I believe the timing placement's very similar to the Luke Wilson mm-hmm. suicide attempt in Royal Tenenbaums. I felt like, this was one of the moments where I was like, that's just an echo of that to me or like a remix of that. It is, but it's a, instead of a down, it's an up um, in terms of the story, uh, the character development arc, right? Because he says, anyways, I s- 
guess I still have more healing to do. But you're getting there. I know, but it's... And yeah, definitely going to add a lot of character to you. But to me, that is even doubling down on. You're right. It's a different usage because it's no, no, I up, see what you're saying. But it is yeah. that is some rookie writing the subtext. And maybe Wes it Anderson is. has his reasons or arguments why I'm a master of the art form. I can have him say the subtext that I want. It's a heightened reality or whatever. He does it all the time. But to me, <laughs> a char- right. But a character in a movie saying out loud the words, I guess I've still got more healing to do. Yeah, but you're getting there. It feels It sweaty, makes right? me cringe. It feels like the devil in Futurama going, you can't have characters just say how they just feel. That makes me feel angry. Yeah, this is exactly. that moment for me. It's too far in that direction. You get it. You get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for better or worse, uh, we get that information. We're like, ah, I see what you did there. Um, mm-hmm. Under the inaudible sound of... Uh, plane noise which i did like this maneuver that it's Mm -hmm. a silent scene um francis convinces them to tear up their tickets on the runway and they all excitedly turn back so they're like staying in india baby (laughs) and um (laughs) they take a scooter and hired help follows them with a giant flotilla of all their luggage uh flotilla is a good word we don't use flotilla enough yeah (laughs) They get to the monastery and they see their mom. And at first it's Angelica Houston, incredible as always. And at first she seems like a mom or you're, I was refreshingly like, oh, this isn't going to be horrible. Cause she's acts all happy. Yeah. She hugs, she kisses. She's them. confused. Yeah. She's like, why didn't you listen to my letter? But she's very happy to see him. Um, and then oh, she's like, why are you here? And Francis retells the story of how he got, she's like, what happened to your head? And he retells the story, but this time we get the sense it's the honest version and something that he obviously didn't tell the brothers is he says, I smashed into a hill on purpose on my motorcycle. So it was a suicide attempt, or at least Mm -hmm. uh, that one of those moments where you're like, fuck it. And he just crashed his motorcycle McNulty style. Um, (laughs) And you can tell from the way the Adrian Brody and Schwartzman react that they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, Mom makes them aware that there is a tiger. It ate one of the sister's brothers, which makes them all laugh. And <laughs> she's like, he died. Don't, <laughs> don't laugh. You know, really, they, yeah. that happened. Yeah. Um, That's great. They pray and hang out. Mom orders food for all of them in the same way that Francis did. Like, we see where he got it from. She says mm-hmm. stuff like, let's all make an agreement and stuff like Francis has been doing. She right. kisses them all goodnight, turns out the lights. And then uh, Peter sort of physically takes her and guides her and sits her down. And so it's almost feels like an intervention. And he's like, you haven't been a part of our lives here. Let me tell you about my son, you know? Yeah. Um, a son, you should, I'm going to just read this whole part. A son, you should be with Alice. You should have come to dad's funeral. Why didn't you? Because I didn't want to. Why are we talking about this? We should be celebrating. Why are you here? Uh, they ask her and she says, because I live here. These people need me. Francis says, what about us? And mom says, I don't know the answers to these questions. Your father is dead. It happened. We'll never get over it, but that's okay. The past happened. That's enough, isn't it? And then one of the brothers says, not for us. And she says, I told you not to come here. (laughs) So let's break this down because it's the emotional payoff, right? It's the big moment. I love especially her saying, like, I didn't want to go to the funeral. I just didn't want to. That's my, that's I do what I want. I don't do what I don't want. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also a statement on grief uh, about how everyone has a personal way in which they grieve. Some people don't need the funerals, but collectively, other people need 
have an expectation and need you to grieve a certain way. That's interesting to me. Or at least need you involved in your life. Like Wes is pretty obsessed with estranged parents and the whole that leaves. Right. And yeah, like that doesn't change the fact that they needed you to be a mother or they had that expectation that you would fulfill you that role. You to be a part of our grief, yeah. And you weren't part of the grief. You didn't hold hands in the circle. And that affected us, that's all, you know? Yeah, um, But it, acknowledge that. But at the same time, they are all adults now. It's interesting that they're like, reach back, they're like, make that right. And she's like, well, that's not a thing that can happen because we're here now, now, you know? <laughs> that's done. Yeah. I um, think which is very a- uh, uh, Royal Tenenbaum, literally the character, where he's like, you know? Sorry, I fucked up. My bad. Yeah, but she she doesn't seem like she feels like she owes them an apology. Even you know? right, she she doesn't. She's not like Steve's a suit. She's not going. I fucked up. You're right. She's. I had the right to. I mean, but so how do you feel? Did you come away with the impression that she had a mental collapse? That it's a reaction to grief, or that it's perfectly reasonable to leave your family and go to India if you want? Well, as I alluded to earlier, I thought that the the mental collapse, because, I mean, she's a nun and she seems to be a very successful nun. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like I, I feel like the mental collapse is coming from Francis, who's bottled right. up and internalized this excuse for her and a justification for why they need to go save her because she's acting weird. She's a nun who, who would do that. And so, yeah, I guess she changed in her life. But I don't know, for me personally. And this this is why I like this beat, because it's to every person. I think the the commentary on uh, what what Angelica Houston is saying, like why why I don't need to apologize is very open to interpretation by the viewer. I personally think she's right. I don't think that you owe anyone uh, any anything in grief. I think that that is how grief works. But uh, some people will say to you, hey. You you fucked my grief up because I needed you there for that grief. I don't think it's the onus is on the person to save everyone. You know what? I can agree with that, given that they were fully adults, even in the flashback, I guess, Mm -hmm. because I do feel that, you know, there are exigent circumstances where I would not feel this way. But for the most part, a child, like if you consciously consensually choose to bring a child into the world, it's like rescuing an animal. Right. Or like you, yes, there is an obligation there. You do owe that thing, nurturement and shit and safety, or that's was part of the intended deal. There is a role to play there. But, um, in the flashback of the dad's funeral, they're already in their late twenties. So you're right. At that point in life, she should do what she wants to do. But I can totally sympathize with you going, man, our mom picked, you know, a bunch of strangers in India to be of service to rather than That's her own family. Thing. It just stings like you can get why it That's, would hurt, right? You can get why it hurts, but it's like grow up. Who gives a shit? But it is. <laughs> She's it is, doing once what she again, wants to do with her life. Yeah. Once again, it's a it's a nice little convenient ride around when she's a fucking nun. You know, like mm-hmm. she is saving people left and right in India. There's people who need her. So it's not like she's just getting she's drunk fighting all the time. tigers and shit. Yeah, it's not like she's like fucking wasting away her life and not like, what else are you going to do? She's literally doing important work. So it's convenient that like she gets a pass, you know what I mean? Uh, Which I will be the first to say. So she suggests that they can express themselves more fully with words and has them without words and has them sit in a circle and just look at each other's eyes and feel that they love each other. Right. Then we get Mm -hmm. without exaggeration. 
the signature shot from that 70s show, the sitcom. <laughs> Just that, that around the table, they're all high, turning from person to person, staring at each other blankly shot. Right. Um, 360 uh, yeah. pan. While yeah. that's happening, we check in with the Darjeeling, the train itself. We learn that we learn a little about it's like little postcards of whatever happened to so and so. The snake is alive. The chief steward is caring for the snake. They didn't seemingly break up with Rita. Um, we see the Germans. We see Brendan. We see Natalie Portman at Hotel Chevalier. I, so she is in this. I forgot she's in one shot. We she's see in one shot. Bill Murray, who's just alone, and we never find out who he was or what his goal was. We see Brendan. We see the tiger. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that at a certain point, the rooms themselves aren't on the train. Not like at first it's like, right. at, at first you're like, oh, this is just, uh, you know, we're panning down the train, but then it and, becomes symbolic or whatever. And then it becomes like, oh, Natalie Portman is clearly in Italy or where, or Paris or wherever the fuck she is. She's not on a train, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Bill Murray probably on a train, but at a certain point it pans over instead of dollying and it's just a tiger in the jungle. <laughs> so like it's, I kind of like the um, stream of consciousness location aspect of the dollhouse filmmaking. And is does. the tiger the grief that just comes and fuck you, fucks you up suddenly? That just takes. I don't think someone? so. Or what do you think the tiger is burning bright in the jungle of the night? <clears throat> in the jungle of the night, uh, I don't actually have an answer for you. Do you think it's um, vibe? I think it's vibe. I think it's. It's very um, Steve Zissou seeing the shark at the end. It is, but feels the, like he just kind of put it in there. There's no. There's no consequence to the tiger other than an excuse given from their mother to why they can't come. There's no and the reveal that, that she the was telling the truth because Granted, it's first it thought to be people. Alive. Yeah, it kills people, but that they're all auxiliary to the story. So if you just look at it from a story standpoint, what's the worth of the tiger? Well, I don't really know because it's not really that it doesn't play. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just another acknowledgement of Angelica Houston has a lot of things vying for her attention. She's doing good work. Why are you bothering her with this nonsense shit? Get over yourself. I think it's, you know, it doesn't really represent that. It's just more of a, a device for that to play itself out. Mm -hmm. But cool shot. You yeah. Know? Uh, cool shot. So then, oh yeah, Olive Francis. Yeah, the mom says, let's make an agreement uh, to sort this all out in the morning. And when we wake up, we'll be better people who are able to work through all these issues and right. everything will be great. All right. We'll just Next do it morning. in the morning. I got to run out for cigarettes. She doesn't say yeah, that. She, she literally. <laughs> and she, she says to be continued. And they never see her again for the rest yeah, of their lives. The next morning, the brothers wake to find she has left. And but she set up some breakfast. You know, she's not unforgivable, I guess. So uh, it isn't just she does that, this all the time. So she doesn't have a pass in the sense that she acutely needs to be away from her family. Right. She wants to not be a mother. I think that that is an interpretation. I think it's probably a very valuable one and it's the because it's the one that the brothers internalize. I think that the movie's trying to tell us she's just got a lot of shit to do and she's like I don't need to be a part of my son's lives, you know? Because that's just they're older, you know? Yeah. That's just true with some families. Um 
I guess it just seems to predict who's going to stay and fight the tiger, Angelica. But that's the thing. That's what it comes down to is that it's like one person saying, I I need this from you. And another person saying, I don't think you need this from me. Who's right? I don't know. That's the whole spiritual journey aspect. Yeah, I wrote down or what I got from it, but I think it's similar in different words. Sometimes we only get what we get. Your best strategy is to make the best of it instead of wanting what you don't get because no one gets a whole situation. No one gets the whole picture. Right. Right. You just get what you get. They immediately go out to pray instead of eating breakfast Mm -hmm. and they do their, they do take three of their little ritual and it succeeds this time. Well, they do the peacock feather thing, but they only have one now. Right. So as brothers, they all do the ritual over one feather, you know, uh, and then they touch their peens together and they become the three musketeers. They become, they become Voltron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it feels like the spiritual journey is complete. Somewhat, right. Um, is the vibe that we're supposed to get. Um, Jack tells him he's go, working on a new short mm-hmm. story and he has the ending, but not the beginning, which feels like a reversal of his fortunes at the start of the story. Um, and this is the one where it's clearly Hotel Chevalier because he says uh, lines that they say in the short. And he says he would not be going to Italy at the end. And Francis says, I like it. I like how mean you are. <laughs> so they're like, he's standing up to his ex and they're happy about that. Uh, he admits that it's autobiographical. Finally, that's the completion of that arc. That's the other bit. Yeah. yeah. And uh, at the train station, they try to get, uh, get aboard another train. They see <gasps> a train and they're like, let's get on that. This and they leave. A, I, I was watching oh. this with my mom, by the way. And even she, who's not a big symbol head like us, she was like, oh, so they have to lose their baggage to catch the train. And I'm like, I know it's eye rolly to me. It's it's over the top. Um, so yeah, they drop their baggage in order to catch the train. Uh, Good for them. Once again, the trademark of Wes Anderson. This sequence is shown in slow-mo. Um Oh, and in the background of the shot, the far background, there's a kid rolling a hoop with a stick. What a goddamn hero. (laughs) Yeah. Good extra work. Yeah, good extra work. Uh, Francis gives back their passports, but both their brothers say, you know what, you hold on to it, signaling that the trust has been built over the movie. And the movie kind of ends with them saying, let's go get a drink and smoke a cigarette. And they do. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the movie. Yep. Unless, like me, you watch Hotel Chevalier, which goes like this. Jack orders room service. He wears the same robe he wears in the movie. Uh, Natalie Portman gets the room number and he gives it to her begrudgingly over the phone. He cleans and showers. Uh, he plays. Mu- he sets the mood using music from the same old school iPod he constantly uses in Darjeeling Limited. Uh, she comes in, interrogates him, kind of negs him repeatedly. Um, but the passion rises and rises and they finally bone. Uh, and right before... She says, have you slept with anyone? He says, no, have you? And she hesitates a long time and says, no. He says, that was a long pause. Well, she gets naked and he says, there are bruises all over your body. But then he never follows up on it and just bones her. So clearly, neither, they don't care about each other, right? She has been, someone has beaten her and he doesn't ask about it. Um, And it ends with them saying, if we fuck, I'm going to feel like shit tomorrow. That's okay with me. They fuck. I love you. I'd never hurt you on purpose. I don't care credits it's a very sad it's very <laughs> upsetting short yeah, yeah. and it, it's kind of revealing of wes anderson's once again we talked about the romantic stories that he kind of crafts very um there's not a lot of hope there's a lot of distrust with 
romance with, from Wes. You know, I think that he even yeah. even his like and they they lived happily ever after is kind of fucked up. You know, except that incest couple from Tannenbaum's. I got I got high hopes for those kids. I think they're, they're going to be all right. Be all right. Yeah. Good brother sister team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and I actually movies. mean that they're the couple I have the highest hopes <laughs> for in they, a Tannenbaum movie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it takes us to the second spectra, right? Pedagogy. Yeah, we're in it. Now we're going to talk about some symbolism and some other stuff that we probably alluded to and talked too much about in diegesis. But, you know, just cool stuff mm-hmm. we noticed. Yeah. Okay. So I got like, I got one. I, I kind of alluded to please. the, uh, where's the goddamn battery charger? which is kind of, to me, the resonant line of the movie. We talk about chargers, batteries being dead, adapters for power throughout the entire movie. And obviously, I think that this is symbolic of the spiritual journey. Um, I think that recharging batteries, you know, to to use the colloquialism, is is more about, like, I just got to, I got to, you know, take index of myself and do all that stuff. So I think that that's what he's kind of doing there. Um, and it's almost always Francis saying it because Francis is the one in the movie who almost always is saying the quiet part loud. Um, and I think what it always comes up, it comes up at, um, the all's lost point. It comes up at the, uh, the flashback, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the body shop. And it comes up in a first act a few times with the power adapter, uh, at the bazaar, at the first uh, Hindu temple. Um, it's mm-hmm. almost always at moments where they're at a, a nexus point in their journey. Will they, or won't they go on the journey? Will the journey succeed is, you know, it's like, these are the moments in which the battery comes up because I think that the reason that he scripted it that way is just to make us as the audience think about the fact of like, are they going to abandon or are they not? Are they going to recharge the batteries or are they not? So I really think it's a simplistic kind of metaphor for just, you know, their journey. Um, but I noticed yeah. it. It's there. And I think it's the resonant line in the movie, more or less. It's said several times. That's awesome. That did go right by me. Um, so I want to, qu- I have a question for you about a, another mm-hmm. thing. So the three boys in the river. Yeah. And yeah. Peter doesn't save. Like, I don't know if the, the metaphor is what I think the metaphor is. Peter didn't save himself, right? What do you think that's all about? Do you think there's something there? Because they each save I a I do boy. think there's something there, and I think it's the ultimate flaw or the issue I take with the viewpoint mm-hmm. or the maybe the unexamined bias that or privilege that Wes comes from. And uh, I kind of say that without trying to be too judgy because I have those too. We all do. Uh, I just think it behooves us to notice things like I do like uh, it is interesting to me that yes I agree that Peter is using and the screenwriter is therefore is like using the death of a small Indian child as a metaphor for his loss which is a great microcosm of my issue with the movie which is that it's kind of like a going on vacation, going on a luxury vacation to Jamaica. And then like you lose your passport and you go see the real Jamaica quote unquote, and you come back and tell your friends how you were fundamentally changed. But it's like, but you don't have to live like that. Or like, if you, you know what I mean? You don't have to live in a corrugated steel housing or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it does feel like a traveler's 
dream of going over to India, sucking up all the spiritual enlightenment, including like a child will die for you to grow based on it. And then, and they'll carry your luggage for you the whole time. And then you get to fuck off and good, like, hope you enjoyed your vacation. Uh, it's sort of like a male eat, pray, love a bit. Uh, <laughs> and that, so yeah. that, I think it's a good microcosm of that issue, mm-hmm. which I I don't think completely ruins or disqualifies the things the movie's saying. I just think it's an issue that we've seen with Anderson before. I think um, you're right, absolutely right. Peter needs them to make, he is like, make sure he tells another kid, make sure they know that he was too slippery. Right. I lost him over the rocks, sure but I had him the rest know. of the time. Make sure they know that. And it's like, why? To make you feel better? The dad doesn't need gruesome details yeah. of how his son died. You don't need to do that. Who, who does that benefit? Who does that right. benefit other than had their perception of you? Yeah, exactly right. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I don't think Peter really actually gets over his hurdles in this film. Um, it's kind of a major problem I have with it. You want to hear something funny about your observation about, you know, the traveler's kind of wet dream? Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger Ebert... <laughs> Of the Chicago Sun Times. Sun Times. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what I'm uh, the three and a half out of four stars. And he has this quote, which I thought was funny, which is he said, uh, Wes Anderson, quote, uses India not in a touristy way, but as a backdrop for something that is very, very there. And I was like, that's exactly opposite of what you and I believe, because <laughs> it is very yeah. touristy. And it, when you get down to it, right? Well, I, yeah, they're literally just going on a quick circuit of hotspots and checking out. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the trip a bit where you're also seeing quote unquote travel porn, right? Of right. Amazing, beautiful cultural moments and stuff. And I do think being exposed to other cultures is beautiful and causes growth. So I'm of two minds about it. Yeah. I think the journey as depicted is totally valid. And a real thing that often happens is that uh, privileged white tourists go places and grow from that. The growth is real. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's necessarily fully fair that we go and do that, Um, you know. Maybe, or I know there's a lot of arguments on, but it, it sustains economies, but it also squashes certain aspects of culture. So I think absolutely right. I'm on your side on that. I think Ebert is probably talking more about like, it's not an ethnographic kind of uh, suggestion, meaning it's not like, oh, look at these Indian people and with their, you know, strange ways, you know, like. Uh, yeah, I call it typical for the time. Remember, typical for the time, Robert not Ebert, too, yeah. even watching this movie, was very, very old. So, like, <laughs> right. so I don't think he's actually critiquing or, like, looking at the story, which we are. And we're saying, well, the growth in the story is itself kind of privileged. Um, I don't think he means that when he says it uses India not in a touristy way. I think they both can be true. But I just thought it was funny because here we here we have Roger Ebert lauding it for the exact reason that we're like, ah, eh, it's one of the bigger issues of the movie. Yeah, but it's a sliding scale, right? Or yeah, I do think I don't know Ebert. I, I disagree with Ebert, but I have the privilege of how long is that now? Fifteen years of additional yep. growth. So yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I kind of already spelled out what I think the big thrust is, which is always a fair thing to remind people of. In fact, I 
think it's one of the main things I grapple with in my life. So I'll take as many reminders as I can get that you can't always get what you want. Eh, fitting because he uses a lot of Rolling Stones music in this movie, uh, but not that one. <laughs> you can't always get what you want and you're better off accepting what you have. Doesn't mean don't act. It means don't envy, don't brood, mm. don't ruminate mm. when you could, you know, act, but um, but take time to enjoy and be present. I can't do any of that shit. I still want <laughs> you and me to be legendary filmmakers. And I it's killing me like that I can't is, let that dream go. Is ambition antithetical to being happy, do you say, though? It's been a stumbling block for me, but I don't think it is for everyone. Would you when you say not for or, everyone, do you mean or, the successful? I wonder. Or do I conflate? No, no, no. I think there's people who because I, I also conflate stuff because I think it might just be I have depression, period, and I apply it to whatever is around True. me, right? So meaning there when I'm not depressed, I'm grateful for the success I do have and all the fans and the fact that we can keep the lights on doing a combination of podcasting and blah, blah, blah. Super, there's a lot of joy to be had from that. Um, and when I'm depressed, I can't access that and I focus on how far we still have to go based on what we thought was going to happen or we want. Um, so sometimes I think it means something, quote unquote, I'm like, uh, I'd be much happier if I could achieve this. And some, or sometimes I'm like, no, I'm happy when I'm happy and I'm depressed when I'm depressed. And it's almost like a tide that just comes in and goes out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know which is true or if it's a combination of both, but I do think this story and a lot of stories like it are something that. I wish I was told more as a child and uh, we're looking at having kids soon and I do not plan to tell them if you work hard, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. I plan to tell them that life is complicated and your life is unpredictable and will have lots of twists and turns and everything about it you can either learn from or take great joy from. Um, mm. But it's not, I think it's a weird thing that we tell kids or at least my generation of white boys was very much told if you work hard, you will achieve whatever period. And that is a very insidious lie that I think yeah, I for think me has was, been one of the major hurdles in my life. I think it's a, it was an overcompensation because the previous generation probably had a lot of like, I don't expect anything from life. Life is cruel. Uh, Cause it is. Uh, yeah. Life's not then. fair. It's an interesting thing of our generation. Cause Previous generations had life's not fair as a slogan. I think we need to get back to that. I think that's more true. Life's not fair, not in a bad way, but accept that reality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that there's, I, I think that there's truth to both. Um, so right. I'm not very helpful in that. I'm also not planning on having children anytime soon. So there you go. I believe in working hard, but I don't believe it's a magic box that will pop out whatever you thought you'd get as a kid, you know? It definitely isn't. Uh, Life doesn't go as planned. Is a safe to me, way to it's say all that. in what you make it. For example, my you know, if we want to examine my happiness vis-a-vis the success, you know, in the ambitions the and career, you know, kind of aspirations yeah. that I had, um, and I still have. It's like um, I don't think I don't think that. I think the expectation is the problem. Uh, and you're right that that, that was what was told to us. But 
you made that expectation too. I was the arrogant one, whereas, you know, it's true that I was told by my parents that I could be anything, I guess. Um, although my parents didn't truly drink that Kool-Aid. Um, mm. I was the one who said that I could be a filmmaker. I could go out and be a successful, you know, storyteller. Yeah. That's a bed that I made. So yeah. And, and you infected me or, but for better or worse by work through working with you, I fell in love, completely in love with the process. Every aspect, like ideating to writing, to casting, working with actors to the point that it feels like my calling. So it's just it's, like hard to not there's do it. There's <laughs> something so beautiful about it. It's just, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's everything. It's a good process. But like, yeah, it really, we love film. We love the, the process of stories. Um, Mm-hmm. I love it so much, but, uh, I guess like just to kind of finish the thought, it's just like, if we tell ourselves that we can be anything, I don't think that that's necessarily the ill when we try to take a shot. I don't think people should not take shots. You know, you have the right to be stupid. That's a part of life, you know, go for it. Be stupid for successful living is one of my favorites. But it's true that enough of that will turn you into a, you know, curmudgeon piece of shit because then you'll be like not no one gets anything and uh, it's all a fucking you know it's all a mistake. But that is what i am at certain times now <clears throat> i see the uh logic of that alluring i try not to bu- drink that kool-aid just because um i don't know what you benefit from you don't no i don't depression is a waste of time i just uh, don't have the ability to ward it off at all times but yeah mm. I that's a uh, yeah. I mean, like, there's no answer to that, right? We're not going to solve it on a podcast about Darjeeling Limited for sure. Maybe a Tales from the Pit, but not this one. I definitely think it's something that I'm glad that we got this reflection from, like this movie, because I think it's where this movie doesn't truly go. It just says you go on a spiritual journey. It's a struggle, yes, but and done. You know, it's done. We did it, and now we're spiritually evolved. Which is well, but it is what it is, which is a valid point. Yeah, they got as much growth as they got. That's the end of the story. You but know? isn't that all I, stories? I can, you know, I, it is. It is all all stories that line. Just why up. ultimately I find this film to have good moments, some charisma, and some charm, and some general statements about spiritualism. But it's nothing like sophisticated to, uh, to write home about on that level, but yeah. not everything has to be. It's a simple fable of it is what it is. Yeah. Right? I agree entirely with everything you said. I still also say, take from it what you want. Probably my second favorite Wes Anderson movie, you know, with Funny. all of its problems. Interesting. Well, it's because what I like are the it other ones now that, I don't know. <laughs> I like it better now that we've talked about it. Um, I, I love Tenenbaums, as you know. I'd put Moonrise Kingdom up there. I'd put Isle of Dogs up there. I'd put Haven't seen Fantastic that. Mr. Fox. Well, the animated ones have a special place in my heart because I love animation. True. I've heard good things about French Dispatch. Haven't seen about it. Haven't seen it yet. Oh, wait. I was going to segue into Portents of the Future, but we have a whole spectra to get through. Yeah, let's do Howdy do that. Um, I will note that in the screenplay, this is just trivia and shit. We're almost done. <laughs> in the screenplay, uh, the brothers are named Francis Ford Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, and Jack Nicholson, which is pretty that's stupid. The, that's stupid. But I mean, friends <laughs> of Wes Anderson, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Wes Fanderson. The, uh, another trivia, which I, you know, usually I try to take the more technical stuff. I love how they did this, though. And I wish to get to the point where I, as a filmmaker, can ever 
dictate this kind of thing. The train scenes were filmed inside a moving train. I don't think people who don't make movies know exactly how baffling that is. Not from just, it's literally filmmaking is about control and a moving train is sound, it's movement, it's fucking a catastrophe. Light changing all the time. Light changing and it's just like, how do you light it? How do you make it look like a movie? How do you not just, how do you, because anyone can put a camera up and film footage of your family on a train and it looks like garbage. Your home movies look like fucking garbage. This shit looks like a movie. How did they do it? Well- they couldn't, the train itself said, you can't put anything on the ceiling. All filming equipment couldn't be more than a meter out the windows for safety concerns, which a meter is not that much. You usually need better, like that's too close. It, it makes the lighting too harsh and bright and like the bright spots are too bright. The dark spots are too dark. It's not a wash of light that we usually like when we watch a movie. And uh, so the production designer went to the company and said they need 10 rail cars and a locomotive and they're going to redecorate it entirely and essentially light it from the walls and from the outside. And then they're just going to move on the railway in a controlled railway situation. And uh, the Northwestern Railways had never gotten such a request and but they were like, sure, you can do it eventually. And I just think that the amount of like you already have a company who's like, I don't want you to do this thing. It's already like mm-hmm. a horrible situation where it's like, man, even if we get what we want, is it really going to be good? And they still did it. They, you know, they worked really hard. The the production designer and Wes Anderson said, this is what we got to do it. Otherwise, there's no movie. I want to do it this way. They stuck to the guns and this is the product. That's pretty fucking cool. That is. Um, behind the scenes thing that I think speaks to the flaw we were discussing, which is just that after they completed the first draft, so after writing it, they visited India to see if the fictional world they'd created meshed with the real thing and then changed very little. Most of the changes were cutting dialogue because Anderson, quote, wanted India's natural beauty to speak for itself, which to me is code for he's interested in engaging with the land on a superficial level, the train on a technological level, but the culture, he'll take the parts he needs, but he's not deeply interested in it. And that's okay, but it's just, it is what it is, right? Um, (laughs) Writing a movie about India and having it a core part of like the philosophical function of the story and having never been there is... Arguably not even his place to do. I think exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do love this though. And if I were the actor, I would totally do this. Natalie Portman came to India for 30 minutes of filming, then spent 10 days just hanging out in India. Um, Bill Murray was scheduled for three days of filming. He called it after a day and a half and then stayed in India for a month. (laughs) Hell yeah. It's nice to be famous, right? Yeah. It's nice to have an excuse to go to India and then just have the money to hang out there for a month. Yeah. Yeah, You just ah, did my work. It took that much. It took not any amount of time at all. And now I'm just going to have a vacation. Um, yeah. If only. Yep. That's all I got. That might be all I got, but wait, but wait, there's more, but wait, 
There might or there might not be. But wait, there might be more. Assistant Brennan. But, but, no, that's all boring. I wrote some stuff down, but it's nothing. It's nothing. Great. Right in home great segue into a very exciting announcement. Great. <laughs> yeah. Woo. Woo. So we did it. Ding, ding, ding. All not aboard. <laughs> End of the lion. Um, we had our spiritual journey that was Anderson season one. And we've reached roughly, pretty exactly, the midpoint in the filmographies of both Wes and P.T. Anderson. Now that line might shift as both, well, one Anderson has claimed he's retired. The other is still out gunning. Um, but we've decided that this is a wrap on Anderson season one. We did it. That's season one. We got one. through it, everyone. Woo! Pat yourself on the back. Good job. Thanks for joining us um, for the all the deep dives. We've dived deep and now we're ready to make space for season two. The return of Kings of Kings. Ooh, baby. We're back to the king. We're back to the horror. So, the master. That's right. So yeah. Um, so watch next this month. space next month. We'll be doing more Stephen King adaptations and then uh for a whole season. And when that season wraps, we'll be back with season two of Anderson's uh, to cover the rest of both of their filmographies. So your deep dives aren't going anywhere, but the lens is changing once again for everything. <laughs> turn, turn. We'll see you next time. Turn, <laughs> turn on frame rate. Turn. T- I mean, Kings of whatever, <laughs> whatever this show is. Fuck it. We love you. We love you. Yes, we love you. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge giant monster beans if you enjoyed this content module please like rate subscribe or tell a friend about us we love you